Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm Darcy Staniforth. I'm an American Studies scholar and lecturer, but I also love to explore the paranormal. On this podcast, we explore the paranormal, the occult, the strange, and the unknown as we try to decode the mysteries around these topics. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we're decoding hauntings with three special investigators of all things haunted, author and researcher Colin Dickey and paranormal investigators Greg and Dana Newkirk. I sit down with these three incredible guests and discuss the things that haunt us and how so many of these haunted places are actually part of our everyday experiences. Our first guest is Colin Dickey. Colin is the author of Ghostland, an American history in haunted places. We sat and talked about how the Winchester Mystery House got him started exploring haunted places and why we all need to tell these ghost stories. You should believe, because it is all real. Joining us now on the Mysteries Decoded podcast is author Colin Dickey, author of Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places, available wherever books are sold. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. This is really cool. I am so excited because you are bringing not just the paranormal research in a traditional paranormal research way, but you are looking at the cultural end of things and the historical end of things. So how did you get started in investigating haunted places in the first place? I think I got my curiosity peaked originally just from living in San Jose, California and going to the Winchester Mystery House a lot as a kid. And, you know, this house that supposedly Sarah Winchester built as a labyrinth so that the ghosts who were haunting her could never find her was this kind of story that when you're a little kid and you sort of live in a kind of boring suburban house um, to be sort of lost in this sort of 161-room Victorian mansion. It just stirred all kinds of curiosity and really sort of piqued my my interest in this whole thing. And I think that planted a seed for me from a really young age. And and from there, I mean, I, I grew up loving, you know, Stephen King and, and horror movies and stuff like that. And I was always sort of drawn to this kind of fascination. But I, you know, like the older I got, the more I just started to really want to know why am I fascinated with these stories? Why am I drawn to these stories? Why do I love being in these weird old houses, these strange places that make me feel sort of slightly unsettled? Like, what is that whole feeling and phenomenon? And that, I, I guess, kind of drove me to, to kind of want to figure out how to unpack all that. Can you paint a picture for our listeners out there who have never seen the Winchester Mystery House, who have not ever Googled the Winchester Mystery House, what does the Winchester Mystery House look like? Yeah, I mean, this is really, truly one of the great, strange structures of the United States. And if you if you get a chance, I mean, it's a really overpriced place, but it's definitely worth going. So the, the Winchester Mystery House, the story basically is that Sarah Winchester uh, was the daughter-in-law of the guy who invented the Winchester rifle or, you know, patented the Winchester rifle, made gobs of money selling Winchester rifles. And... She married his son. He was going to take over the company. They had a baby in 1861 or 63, I can't remember, who died in infancy. It was their only child, uh, died in uh, after a couple of weeks. And then uh, later on, he contracted tuberculosis and, and also died. And so she – the story is that she went to see a psychic in Boston who told her that – these deaths were the result of uh, her family being cursed. She was being cursed by everyone who had been killed by a Winchester rifle. 
and that the only way to keep them at bay would be to build a house that was never finished. So the, the, as the story goes, she she moved to San Jose, California, and she bought an eight-room farmhouse and spent the next 37 years working on the house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There were always people building on it. And so, uh, and that continued until her death in 1922. And so when you go there, what you see is a 161-room Victorian mansion. It's gargantuan. The The tour that goes through about two-thirds of the rooms is like you end up walking several miles. It is a monstrous building without any real overarching sense of design. You know, it's sort of a wing just sort of kind of goes off and you kind of know, well, maybe there's going to be like something here, but no, there's nothing there. You know, there's kind of, it's this kind of sprawling labyrinth of a house where you really don't know where you are half the time. There's a, you know, it's really easy to feel disoriented. I mean, you you can only access it through these tours, so it's not like you get lost there, but it it gives you this kind of sense of vertigo whenever you're inside because it everything sort of looks like a normal house, but like if a normal house exploded exponentially in every possible direction without any overall sense of design or form. And so that's kind of the feeling of the house and why it is such a weird and unsettling and compelling place to to wander around in. And also very beautiful in certain aspects, right? Because of all the Tiffany stained glass that she had commissioned and a lot of like very beautiful, fine, I mean, she was a wealthy woman. So these are beautiful furnishings and the highest quality materials of that time, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, most of the furniture was carted out after she died, but there is some of some of the the fixtures and and as you mentioned, you know, the the stained glass in the walls are are, you know, jaw-droppingly gorgeous and super expensive. And like and even beyond that, I mean, this is just it's really like if you like Victorian architecture, this is like the height of Victorian architecture, you know, I mean, you know, the gables and the towers and the cupolas and all the stuff. I don't even know all the architectural terms, but it's got them all. It's got every cool Victorian architectural feature inside and out that you could possibly want in a house. It's got dozens of them. And so, yeah, it just, it feels very Baroque. It feels very excessive, but, you know, in kind of a cool, strange, unsettling kind of way. And I think one of the most unique things about that space and the place is that you are in San Jose and you're expecting that you're going to go down this like long winding road to this giant, you know, more than 100 room mansion. But really, it's just in the middle of San Jose, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, when it was built, it was in the middle of nowhere, but subsequently the whole city has kind of grown up around it. So there's a freeway there and Winchester Boulevard is this kind of main thoroughfare. And so it has sort of persisted in the middle of a city that's kind of grown up around it, which I think is part of its sort of weird charm and allure. Yeah, and I think that that is where it like kind of bucks the tradition of haunted places, right? Because so many times we think of haunted places, maybe abandoned places or places that have been kind of discarded by time or off the beaten path that we have to really go seek out. But you could be, you know, going to get your morning coffee and, oh, by the way, there's the Winchester Mystery House, in case you haven't noticed that before. And I think that's one of, it's an anomaly as far as places with haunted lore are concerned. 
Yeah, I mean, it is really strange because it, you know, right next door to the Winchester Mystery House, at least all when I was growing up, are these dome-shaped multiplexes, which is where you would go and see, you know, Batman and Star Trek and all these things. And so, like, it was sort of, it was kind of the center of my cultural universe, even even when I wasn't there. It was kind of always in the periphery. And, um, yeah, it it has this kind of gravity. And it's true. There are a lot of haunted places that um, that are kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and that's part of the lore. But I, when I was researching this project, I mean, I've more and more I found that a lot of the really famous haunted places are kind of in these kind of centrally located places. I mean, Moundsville, West Virginia, is itself not very centrally located, but the the haunted penitentiary, the Moundsville Penitentiary. I mean, that was. That's in the center of town. The whole town is built up around it. You know, I mean, it was the driving industry for years. It's like the town exists for this haunted prison. And so, you know, or like the Danvers Asylum that H.P. Lovecraft sort of used for for his sort of lore um, is right off a pretty big highway in Massachusetts. So you do kind of see these places. And, I, you know, there are these places that kind of are a lot more prominent than I think maybe you're you're expecting. And I think that's kind of an interesting diverging point from, you know, the kind of ghost stories and horror movies versus, you know, these actual haunted places, which are kind of often in our periphery. No, I think that's a really great point to think about as far as our expectations of a haunted place versus some of the most touted haunted places in the United States are in the midst of your everyday, right? And maybe that's what makes them even creepier (laughs) for some people is the idea that, like you were saying, I went to the movies right next door to that, or here is this town built all around this haunted penitentiary. And then even in Danvers, Danvers being tied also into the Salem witch trials and the history of that area that has gotten so much attention for this historic moment with the Salem witch trials and these executions. And then this institution ends up being kind of right next door and this other haunted area. And it kind of sets the tone almost for that entire area that also still has high schools and, you know, supermarkets and people just living there as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And it it is a weird facet. I mean, when I I started this book thinking that I would just write about the Winchester Mystery House. And then at some point I realized, well, I can't, needs to be bigger than that. It needs to be, you know, kind of more places. So I started just, you know, cataloging various things, you know, haunted mental health institutions, you know, haunted prisons, haunted hotels, you know, and I just started kind of cataloging them. And again and again, the ones that kept propping up are ones that are the things that towns and cities are are built around. And I think that that is kind of interesting to me that, as you said earlier, you know, there's this kind of belief that the haunted place is somewhere distant and remote. And often what it is, is it's that the haunted place is right in the middle of everything. It's just you don't notice it or you don't pay attention to it. And then once you start to look for it, you find that the whole kind of substrata of a of a city is haunted. I mean, you know, one of the one of the chapters in the book that I focused on was Los Angeles. You can just go from one haunted downtown hotel to another in Los Angeles. They're all right next to each other. They're all in the dead center of downtown. They're where the conference centers are, where everybody comes and stays. You know, thousands of people go through those haunted hotels all the time, and so they're they're right there. And I think. It's less about going out to the distant place where the haunted house is and more about a 
tuning your perspective to the fact that there are these haunted places or, you know, at least places with reputations of being haunted kind of right in front of you and everywhere you look. Absolutely. For you being interested in haunted places and then also researching and kind of getting to the truth and then ultimately what leads to the cultural truth of these places, how has that been for you? Like, does that take some of the magic out? Do you feel like you're more of an insider? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? When I started this book, I I believed the stories of the Winchester Mystery House. I understood them to be true. I had no reason to doubt them. And I thought, well, you know, this is a really fascinating story about this woman who thought she was haunted by ghosts. I mean, whether or not, you know, the ghosts were actually real, you know, she certainly seemed to believe them. And she built this house and it's sort of this this physical manifestation of her sort of inner psyche. And I thought that was really cool. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of write this book about this woman and her kind of weird, you know, almost pathology or obsession or her kind of excessive mourning or, you know, and so I thought it was going to be really easy. And I, you know, I bopped up to San Jose and I thought, well, I'll just go to some historical societies, pick up some diaries and letters and, you know, kind of slap this thing together and it'll be really easy and it'll be fun. And there just wasn't anything there. There wasn't the documents that I was expecting. There wasn't the contemporaneous accounts that I was expecting. There was, you know, there was this sort of weird absence of confirmation of even the most basic facts of what I just assumed were true. And I, at one point, I went to the New Haven Historical Society because her family was from New Haven. And I thought, well, I'll go to New Haven, see what they have. And I went to the New Haven Historical Society. Do you have anything on Sarah Winchester? And the docent very kindly was like, well, we have something by her cousin who wrote a lot about antebellum carriage design. Would you be interested in that? <laughs> no. And I, I sort of polite, I mean, I politely spent, you know, about 15 minutes leafing through, you know, this research on antebellum carriage design, not sure exactly what I was doing there. And then as I was leaving, he said, you know, they've all been here. The psychics, the historians... They've all come. There's nothing there. Oh. And I just kind of I just kind of stopped and you know I mean I mean you know on the one hand I think he he literally meant we don't have anything in the New Haven Historical Society but on a I I took his sort of larger point that it's like there's nothing there and I I was talking to a historian friend of mine and one of the things she said is she said you know the way history works is we have the history of the upper class because they're the ones who write letters. They're the ones who keep diaries. They're the ones whose possessions are kept track of. Their genealogies are carefully preserved. It's usually the working class and the poorer classes that we don't know what their lives were like because they didn't have time. They didn't have the education to record these things for us. And she said, so it's very bizarre that this incredibly wealthy woman has almost no extant documentation on her. And I thought, well, this is all... So, so, you know, to go back to your original question, I mean, like, at first I was sort of a little bummed that, you know, this wasn't going to be as easy as I thought, but it sort of quickly became its own mystery. Like, what what is going on here? Why isn't there confirmation of this story? What is... What's the story here? And I, I found a couple of letters in the Connecticut Historical Society And they are some of the few letters that we have of hers. And they tell a completely different story. She doesn't seem insane. She doesn't seem possessed by ghosts. She doesn't seem 
haunted or in pathological mourning. She comes across as a very sane letter writer who is just a sort of normal woman who, you know, had some tragedy and and had remarried and, you know, had enough money that she could just sort of, you know, futz around with her house and kind of, you know, make additions and alterations as she wanted to. And so that was the point, I, you know, I started to think, okay, the story that I thought was true is not, but that is itself a really interesting story. Best not to keep the dead waiting. Is there any story that when you got, you were trying to decode really the story behind it that you went, oh, I need to step away because this is not something that should just be written about in passing or this is too sensitive to talk about? You know, there I I ended up writing about this one thing in the book, but it was a difficult thing to write about in that it became my habit when I was traveling. I would I would travel to some place, and then if I was had some downtime, I would just Google, you know, most haunted place in X, just to kind of see what you know what I'd find. And I was somewhere where I I had a friend who had lived there many many years ago, and she had lost somebody. She had she had undergone a tragedy, and I was googling around, and to my kind of awful surprise, I had found that, you know, this old friend of mine's tragedy that had happened 17 or 18 years earlier had become a ghost story, you know, that the place where this had happened was now being, you know, the story was being told to, it was a, it was a college dorm room and it was being told to freshmen as like a spooky, scary story. And I, it just, it just gutted me because I had met her shortly after this thing had happened and I, and I knew what, you know, she had gone through and, and just everything. And, and I, I thought, my God, you know, like this was, this is a terrible thing to have to have to see your own life's tragedy replayed as a, as a spook story. And I, you know, I wanted to write about it, but I, I needed to talk to her and I hadn't talked to her. And I kind of contacted her on Facebook, called her up out of the blue. And, you know, she was sort of like, hey, what's going on? And like, you know, I was like, it's good to hear from you again, but I have this really weird favor to ask of you. And, you know, so that was a, you know, like, again, like, you know, that was one of those moments where I was like, you know, this is particularly with these ghost stories that are about mourning and loss, like there's actual people involved in there. And it was, you know, I mean, it was a sobering moment for me because I tend to like kind of gruesome stories. Like I tend to like murder and mystery and true crime and all that stuff. But it was like, oh, no, they're, they're, they're human beings who, who had to live through this. And you have to remember that. You have to remember for every, you know, ghost story about a murder or a tragedy, that was somebody's actual tragedy. And, you know, I just, you have to be aware of that when you're writing about that kind of stuff. So for you in writing about this, do you also follow like the digital world and what's happening out in social media around the paranormal? Is this something that you are also tied into or do you find that because of your writing, you've been pulled into this world that you didn't even expect? Once you write a book about ghosts, you're always kind of in the world of ghosts. And, you know, I mean, it's the best part for me. And I don't know, I mean, this comes across on social media and also comes across in person. So I don't I don't know that I think about it in quite a digital divide kind of way, but the thing that I love most of all is people will just tell you their stories. And you kind of alluded this before. I mean, once people think that they have a receptive audience, you get these just really amazing stories. And so I was at a bookstore talking to 
a friend of mine who who worked there, and we, you know, we were talking about ghosts because I wrote a book about ghosts, and there was one patron in the bookstore besides me, and she kind of interrupted and and told us this story about that she used to be a flight attendant and that she had been on this plane that was haunted. And, you know, after she left, the the clerk was kind of like, yeah, she she comes in here a lot. She's got a lot of weird stories. I don't really know what's going on with that. But, you know, I went on social media and I, I kind of retold her story on Twitter and it got retweeted into the feed of um, a writer who who's an ex-flight attendant and writes a lot about the sort of world of, of uh, working commercial airlines. And you know, she kind of opened it up to all of her followers and people, you know, and and all of a sudden we had this huge thread of all these people talking about times they had been on haunted planes. It turns out that the one that this bookstore patron had told me about was actually a famous haunted plane. And there was this whole story behind it, you know, and so it was just, it exploded into this whole discussion. And I never really thought about, you know, I thought about, you know, buildings being haunted and graveyards being haunted. But this whole idea that a plane was haunted, I think, was kind of this new and fascinating, strange way to think about things. So that happened over kind of the digital media. But it was really what it was really about for me. And what that, you know, what I love about that is just the the sense that people like enjoy telling their stories. And I just, I have sometimes a reputation as being a skeptic or a debunker, but if there's one thing that I just love more than anything, is just to listen to people's stories. And I try to be as generous as possible because I think there's, there's nothing, there's no real gift you can give somebody like giving them a story. And I just love it. So this leads me, of course, to the obvious question for you, Colin. Do you believe in ghosts, have you had paranormal encounters where you're like, uh, I'm still skeptical, but I can't deny that? I've certainly seen a lot of things in my life and been a lot of places that I don't have a lot of really easy answers for. I've also had a lot of experiences where it seemed really crazy and unusual, and then it turned out there was a very normal explanation for it. So I don't feel the need to say that I believe or that I don't believe, you know. I mean, I had a friend who told me about she was living in this kind of rat trap loft somewhere in some city, and it was kind of, you know, they were all like borderline squatting. And, you know, she was, um, she would wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be this blue figure hovering at the edge of her bed, this kind of wispy blue figure kind of hovering over her. Night after night, it would sort of, you know, kind of linger over her. And I was, you know, my eyes were wide. I was like, whoa, what was it? Was it a ghost? And she said, no, no, it turned out we had a gas leak. Oh, God. And I was hallucinating, you know? And so, like, so that's the thing. I mean, like, I've certainly had some crazy experiences. I just don't know that I want to definitively say, yes, that was absolutely a paranormal experience. And I also don't want to absolutely say, yes, that was absolutely a hallucination caused by lack of sleep. I don't know. I just, you know, like the world is strange and unknowable. And I think that it's cool to just live in that world. It's cool to not know. It's cool to think without feeling the need to have a definitive answer. I think that's much more, that's just maybe how I'm wired. I just think that's a kind of better way to go through life. I got to tell you, I was hoping that it was going to be like a ghost smurf that was floating over her because that would have been amazing. <laughs> she was like, ghost of my childhood. It was a ghost smurf. Ghost smurf happened. But gas leak is This a- is Papa Smurf. <laughs> I was murdered by Handy. Handy. You must tell Smurfette. Handy has murdered me. The Smurf tell franchise? Tell Smurfette. She must avenge my death. 
So you said that you've seen things that are both like, hmm, I don't have an easy answer. And that seemed crazy. And there's an answer. Can you give us examples from your own life about that? I'm always really bad at that. I don't know. I don't know that I, I, I tend to kind of keep those a little bit to myself. Like I have a little harder time calling them to memory. Part of me just wants to, I feel like if I say them out loud, I'm going to have to make a decision as to whether or not I think they're real or not. Whereas if they were just sort of, they're kind of buried back in my subconscious, it kind of feels kind of cool. Like, I don't know what to tell you about that. I just, you know, they kind of exist in the back of my mind. But the more that I sort of say them out loud, the more I feel like they might kind of flit away from me, you know, so I kind of just kind of keep them on the down It's like a sacredness of the experience. Ghosts. It's all real. So, Colin, right now I want to transition into some kind of more fun, lighthearted questions. And the first one I have is when people tell you a ghost story, is there a word or a phrase that constantly comes up over and over again? Yeah. I mean, the phrase that usually starts the story is always some version of, I had this experience one time. For a while... My wife and I would have parties around Christmas to tell ghost stories. We would just invite people over and we would tell ghost stories. And initially, everybody's pretty tentative. You know, everybody's cool. They're just drinking. They're just having a good time. But once you kind of prime the pump and once you start having people tell stories, then these stories just kind of flow out of the most rational, skeptical people you thought you knew will just say, I had this experience one time. This thing happened to me one time. One time I saw this thing, you know, and that's kind of the beginning of it because oftentimes they don't necessarily have a name for what they saw, but it happened to them. And I think that's the thing that is most important for people when they want to tell these stories is they want, they just want to be able to say, this thing happened to me. That's usually the most central point. It's not like it was a ghost. It was my, you know, dead uncle or whatever. It was just like, this happened to me and I'm sharing it with you. If there was one ghost story you could have be true, which ghost story would that be? The story that I think I most wanted to be true was the House of Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts. When you take that tour, there's a part of that tour where you discover the hidden staircase. And it's the tour guides will tell you it's for everybody. It's either the best part of the tour or the worst part of the tour, depending on who you are, because it is this strange claustrophobic staircase that winds around the central fireplace chimney that takes you from the first floor up to the attic. And it is a cool, weird, creepy staircase. And over the years, there have been various theories put forth as to what that staircase was built for. It was built... So during the kind of height of the witch trial paranoia, there was like the people who owned the house needed a place to hide from, you know, the, the pitchfork-wielding mobs. Or there are these, all these various stories about the staircase. And unfortunately, none of those stories are true. And the staircase was added to the house in the 20th century as a, as a tourist gimmick. And... That is a little heartbreaking to me because it is a cool, weird staircase. And when you're walking up it, you do kind of like when I was a kid, I had this friend who was he, he was like had a lot of money at this big, nice house. And he would always say 
you know, there are three hidden like passages in my house. And he would kind of never, he told us that, you know, my friends and I, but then he kind of never would show us that. And every time we would like go over to his house, we're like, show us the cool hidden path. We want to see the hidden passages. He was like, oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, exactly. I want right? to see the so cool hidden like, passages. But, you know, they weren't there. He never showed it to us. It was all like, he was just trying to sound cool and then they didn't ex- actually exist. And so like, I just, you know, when I was in that hidden staircase, you know, I just want to believe that houses have hidden passageways, that there's, you know, that there's a bookcase that opens up to like the secret lab or something. I don't know. I just want those to be true. And the House of Seven Gables, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad to know the truth, but I'm sad to know the truth. Sure. I totally hear that. My last question, is there one haunted place that you want to return to time and time again? There are a lot of haunted places I want to return to time and time again. I love the Merchant's House Museum in Lower Manhattan, which is uh, one of the sort of last standing brownstones in that part of the city. And it feels like just like a different place. And I, I love being there. That's one place I'd like to go back to. I, you know, I will go to New Orleans at the drop of a hat. And of course, sure. in New Orleans, everything yeah. is haunted. So like anywhere you go in New Orleans has got a story and I'm overjoyed to be there. And so the book that I, I just finished, you know, with the thing about aliens and, you know, Bigfoot and water monsters and stuff like that is they tend to congregate in kind of bummer places like Darien, Georgia and Kalispell, Montana and weird faraway logging towns in Northern California and stuff like that. Those are like a lot less fun to go to. So I always want to go back to the haunted places because the haunted places are like in cool towns like New Orleans and Detroit and Salem, Massachusetts. And I mean, if I have to stay in downtown LA, I always try and stay in One of the good old, you know, the Biltmore is always a nice, good haunted hotel to spend time in. So it's not really like what haunted place do I want to go back to? It's like, like, I want to go back to all of them because they're all rad. Maybe not the Moundsville Penitentiary. That was hard. All the rest of them. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending time decoding hauntings with us today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I so appreciate the time. And I am very excited to get to sit and talk with you today. And again, Colin Dickey is the author of Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a super fun discussion. I had a great time. My next guests are Greg and Dana Newkirk. And let me tell you, they sure have some stories to tell. The Newkirks are a married paranormal investigation team who are also the owners and purveyors of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. I don't go searching in the dark anymore. Not after the darkness found me. We are talking about hauntings, ghosts, the paranormal and paranormal investigation. And I'm so excited to have Greg and Dana Newkirk here on the show. They are the owners and purveyors of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and Occult. And you may also know them from a variety of shows on the paranormal, as well as their very special project, Hellier on Amazon Prime. Welcome, Greg and Dana. Hey. Hello. Hello. Thanks for being with us today. 
So can you introduce yourselves? Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Can you introduce yourselves and tell us about who you are? I am Dana Newkirk, and I am a hedge witch and also a caretaker of haunted, cursed, and paranormally significant objects. <laughs> and I'm Greg Newkirk, and uh, I'm a paranormal investigator. I've been a paranormal investigator for about 20 years now. And yeah, we spend our time traveling crisscrossing the country, helping people with uh, strange problems, whether it's hauntings or weirder things than that sometimes. And once in a while, we get a strange object out of it that we put in the museum. So how did you each get involved in investigating the paranormal? It's funny. I think that I had always really been interested in all things paranormal, but it wasn't actually until probably 2000 when my friends and I actually stumbled across uh, Greg's ghost hunting team on the internet. And it kind of inspired us to start our own. And we basically just started to go to supposedly haunted places in and around the city that we lived in. And we started experiencing things. And that was really, for me, kind of the starting point of really exploring the paranormal. My friends and I just wanted to scare each other. <laughs> we would go out to cemeteries at night trying to scare our friends. And <laughs> then eventually weird things happened that we weren't expecting. And we looked at each other and said, oh, my God, monsters are real. And so we started spending a lot of time at the library reading about, you know, Hans Holzer and the Warrens and and then eventually putting that stuff to work and finding that there was something to the paranormal. And it just kind of grew from there. And that's even I mean, it's weird. That's how Dan and I even met is because of the paranormal. We had rival ghost hunting teams back in the day. So my life has very much been paranormal since I was probably 12 years old. Rival ghost hunting teams, a love story for the ages. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned both Hans Holzer and the Warrens. Can you, for our listeners who are not familiar with who they are, give a little background on each of them? Hans Holzer and, and Lorraine Warren were two probably of the most over-the-top, easily like the pop stars of the paranormal. They were ghost hunters. That's the term that they used. And they were really, really huge, particularly in like the 70s and the 80s. Hans Holzer, he was a guy who pretty much never met a haunting that he couldn't cross over. <laughs> he, he uh, every single haunting he went to, he pretty much sent them all to the light. And he worked with psychics a lot. In fact, if you go back and watch, uh, there's an episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy from back in the day. And it's uh, really the first paranormal reality show. It set the three-act structure that pretty much every single paranormal show follows these days. That was Hans Holzer. And then Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, most people know them because of The Conjuring. And they were another uh, husband and wife team who were very over the top. You know, every haunting they met was a demon. And they were pop stars. They were the pop stars of the paranormal in their day and really influenced a lot of what you see people watch on TV these days. Can you think of any spirits that you've pissed off lately? How did you get started collecting haunted objects? And what keeps you focused on making sure that you're truly curating a museum and not a sensational tourist trap? I think it actually really just started by accident. As silly as that sounds, it was kind of by accident. We uh, we were doing a, a lecture at an event, and they asked us if we wanted a table. And we said, sure. And we didn't really know what to bring or what to put on the table. So we thought... Well, we've been paranormal investigators for years. We have weird objects that 
our friends have given us or things that we picked up on our own investigation. So let's just bring some of them with us and see what happens. And uh, that's what we did. And people really responded to it positively. And it kind of became this really cool way to educate people about not only just paranormal investigation, but about objects themselves and what real haunted objects look like and how they behave and what kinds of things happen around them. So, yeah, that was really the first stages of the traveling museum. And really, we just sort of kind of ran with it at that point. And people started to bring things to us at events and they would contact us because they knew that we had a pretty solid background in dealing with objects and people would just send us things. So it just sort of spiraled on its own. And uh, a friend of ours who's an occultist, you know, he's he says to us every time that we talk to him that the museum is just basically building itself at this point. It's it, whatever's supposed to come to us comes to us. And it's, you know, it's just going to continue growing, but it's growing of, of its own accord. Do you keep everything that gets sent to you? And if not, uh, what kind of odd paranormal garage sale are you having? <laughs> or do you have a different ritual around those objects to dispose of them? No, we we keep everything. That's a responsibility that we have with what we've decided to do with our lives. And if we tell people that that's what we're going to do for them, we mean it. And so there's a lot of stuff. You know, we always joke there's the, the clown box at home. It's just filled with porcelain clowns because for some reason everyone's scared of porcelain clowns. So... We keep everything. And there are things, you know, there's there's sometimes that 10% where there is genuinely something anomalous happening with it. And those are interesting. And we can study with those things and we can use those as use cases. But for most of the stuff, it's just shelves of things that people have attached feelings and ideas and, and trauma to that we, they sit on a shelf or they get locked away. And, you know, a lot of, there's things that people send us that are, are, very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the, frankly, this one of the scarier things that we've been given just because of the the psychological aspect, there was a, a, a case here in Kentucky where there was a paranormal team investigating a poltergeist haunting in a government building. And they eventually traced it to a set of dolls. And they were the anatomically correct dolls that were used in child abuse cases where little kids would sit on, on in the court and show people how someone had hurt them. And you th- they don't use those anymore. They have better ways of doing this. But for 50 years or so, these dolls were used in highly, highly traumatic moments in people's lives. And they're just charged with very negative emotions. And those things are things that we can't, we don't travel with them. We don't put them on display, but we just, we lock them in a box and we keep them there because that's what we've chosen to do. And there's a lot of those types of objects that people will give us that do have that that extreme trauma associated with them. And like Greg said, you know, I think at that point, we really, we know that we have a responsibility to caretake those objects and to care for them. But also, you know, they would never be objects that we would travel with based. We wouldn't want to exploit them or we and we wouldn't want to exploit the situation or make it feel that way in any way possible. But there's a lot of sadness and hurt and anger and they are very strange and they act very strange. And they're an example of sort of a percentage of some of the things that we get that are usually the more active objects, um, just based only on the fact the amount of trauma that has attached itself to them specifically. 
following the both of you and understanding some of the objects that you do have in the current collection, one of the things that I I think about is Billy. Mm. And I think about how you came to an understanding of what Billy needs over what maybe was assumed he needs. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that journey. There was a guy who contacted us after we'd done a program much like this. We typically see a spike in people who reach out to us. And he said, I have something. Uh, I found it under my house. I would normally ship it to you, but I see you guys are in Cincinnati. I'm in Dayton. If you meet me halfway, you'll save me a ton on shipping, but I really think that I need to give this to you. So we met this guy, and he has this uh, this big, clearly African statue, uh, beautiful statue, and he found it bound in twine uh, in a burlap sack under a house that he had just lived. He'd only lived there for maybe six months, and the only reason he even found it is because he was running some new cable in the crawl space. So he, he brings it upstairs, and he and his family start to experience very classic poltergeist activity. Their son says, the little man's coming in my room at night. He's pulling the covers off of me. They start to have really nightmarish dreams. And because of this, he said, I need to get rid of this thing. So he gives it to us. And we experienced a lot of this same type of stuff. And one of the things that I love the most about what we do at the museum, we're a traveling museum. So we go, you know, there's only a few of these museums in the country that have allegedly haunted objects. Unlike those, we will come to people. So we travel all year round. And we get to meet people who know more than we do. We're always trying to surround ourselves with smarter people than us. And we get to meet people who are experts, you know, on on art history or experts on archaeology or even just like we met a guy once who could tell us the exact kind of wood something was made out of because he comes from a lumber family. That type of stuff is so important to us because that's where we get a lot of our breakthroughs. So we're investigating stuff with this statue, which we had just sort of internally been calling Billy because he's an idol. I know, womp, womp, terrible dad joke. (laughs) (laughs) That's where the name came from. It was never supposed to be a public thing. But somebody had heard us say this. So I love that so much. That's where it came from. Um, He's also a rock star haunted object. Oh, for sure. Like he's he's the mascot of the museum, (laughs) for sure. People were very afraid of him at first because we would do EVP sessions and the only thing you would get in these recordings was just this guttural screaming. And constantly we were fighting with people who were like, why are you talking to this demon? We, we had, we've had multiple people walk out of investigations with him, like you said, literally mm-hmm. just getting up and walking out and saying like, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to sit in the same room as this demonic object that you have. Multiple, multiple people have done that. We would constantly remind people, listen, curiosity over fear. We don't know why this thing is doing this. We don't know what's the problem. If something is making this much of a stir, there's a problem. There's something it's trying to tell us. And so we continued to push through. Eventually, there would be like words that would come up in the EVP sessions. And there was obviously some intelligence involved. And then people would start, people who would touch this idol would start to have dreams At first, some of them were kind of scary, but then they started to change. And I had very deeply personal dreams that changed the way that I thought about this figure. And and through all of this, we could never figure out who was Billy, what what was happening here. And then one day, we finally met somebody. We were doing an event in Chicago, and uh, we'd heard that there was a guy there who was an archaeologist for the Field Museum. 
And I was like, please come to our table. I have so many questions. I'd love to know what you think about this statue. And he was like, well, you know, my, I, I do Native American archaeology, but I do have a friend who's in the Congo. It looks like it's probably from the Congo. Let me take some pictures and send it to him, and I'll let you know what he says. He gets back to us later and tells us Billy is a Kisi figure from the central Congo region. These were figures that were used to speak to the ancestors of these tribes, uh, speak to their gods, speak to the spirits of the land and the the earth. And they were deeply, deeply meaningful uh, pieces of their spirituality. And these statues were destroyed and decimated or turned into art pieces when the Christian missionaries came to the central Congo region. And they they threw them into big bonfires or they desecrated them and they brought them to the United States and used them as art pieces and, and basically tried to wipe out this beautiful, rich belief system of the central Congo region. If I was a, essentially a telephone to the gods of these people, and the first thing I saw after waking up was a white Midwestern family, I'd be screaming too, probably. I would probably have a really bad taste in my mouth. And I think that type of context is important. The really fascinating thing is these figures, oftentimes when you would interact with one of these Kisi figures, they spoke to you in dreams. This was all context that we didn't have. But as soon as we knew what he was, we could figure out what this context was. And the story of Kisi figures is beautiful. They typically involve a member of the tribe deciding they're going to come back and they're going to live in one of these figures or or somehow be attached to this figure so that they can help the tribe and teach the tribe the things that they've learned in the afterlife. That's beautiful. I think one of the things that we focus on a lot, too, when it comes to, you know, and Billy is a really good example of it, is this concept of uh, the ethics of not only paranormal investigation, but being a caretaker of said haunted objects. It's a matter, I think, of like unpacking what that actually means versus just sort of saying, well, I collect weird haunted things. Because the reality of it is if you collect weird haunted things that you believe have some kind of an intelligent consciousness attached to, then you have a responsibility to take care of that object and to not exploit it And if that object specifically comes from a different culture than you, you have to figure out what, whether to, you know, return it back to the culture that it came from or how you're going to caretake for that object at that point in time. It becomes this massive responsibility. And one of the things that we're constantly trying to talk to people about is the ethics of of being a paranormal investigator and also being someone that potentially, you know, is around haunted objects or collects haunted objects, really kind of take a big step back from that and look at what you're actually doing and what kind of a responsibility is required then at that point in time. Because it's it's so much more than I think people think about, you know, when they first think of, like we were talking about earlier, going to a place where potentially the non-living people there, uh, you know, maybe they were uh, women of color and maybe they would be frightened talking to white men. And maybe it is ethical to not bust in in your tactical vest, scaring the crap out of people, because that's a really psycho thing to do <laughs> when you think about it. I think it's not only culturally insensitive, but it like re-silences people that have already been silenced. Like bingo, it's ego and 
you know, a lot of what I study in the academic world is the idea of how do we write these narratives, right? Who gets to write the narratives? It's usually the people in power. It's usually the winners. Yes. To your point, the idea of the sacred almost feels like it's a concept that is starting to go away in our digital age. Right. Because, you know, you'll see it, it'll show up in the news every once in a while where, say, you know, a group of students or even just individuals go to, say, a memorial site like the death camps of Nazi Germany mm-hmm. that are now these preserved historical sites of their memorial sites. Mm-hmm. People lost their lives here. It was a terrible tragedy. And yet there's somebody taking a selfie, mm-hmm. you oh. know, or, you know, things like that. And this idea of, well, I have access to it, so I get to use it for whatever I want to use it for, not understanding, again, the culture and the respect that should come with those things. There's actually a Native American term called ghost sickness, where people become so obsessed with death, death doesn't really mean anything to them anymore. And I think that's a problem you start to see with paranormal investigators and Mm -hmm. ghost hunters. They become so desensitized to the idea of death and how close they are to it, they no longer have any real respect for it. And that's unfortunate. We see it all the time. Don't be afraid of the dark. Are you kidding me? Of course you should be afraid of the dark. You know what's out there. Has there been a paranormal experience that after the investigation was done, either one or both of you considered getting out of this field? There was one specifically for me that stopped me from investigating for a couple of years. And it happened actually at the end of it was a location in in Ontario, Canada called uh, the Hermitage. And it's an old manor house that burned down many times. And there's a lot of stories associated with the house and kind of your conventional creepy old lady ghost kind of still lives in the ruins of the mansion. And so uh, my team and I, we decided that we would go and investigate this location. And It's a good solid mile walk into the middle of the woods to get to the house. And during our investigation, we were very focused on the house itself. And we didn't realize that at that time, we didn't realize that there was also a lot of uh, paranormal history associated with the woods that were around the house. So about halfway through our investigation, I noticed something in the woods that looked like a, and this is going to sound really weird. It's the best way I can describe it. It was like a eight to 10 foot tall human-ish figure that had really long arms and really long legs, no defining facial features or anything like that. But it was as if television static had been inside of this human shape and it was staticky and buzzy. And our entire group noticed this eight foot tall giant human figure. And as we're focusing on The first one that we saw, two more of them came out of the woods outside from one side and the other. And again, kind of very, very tall as if kind of TV static in the shape of an outline of a person with really long arms and legs. And these things started to walk towards us. And and at this point in time, we were all just kind of losing it because I had never seen anything like that in my entire life. And I, you know, I haven't, again to this day, but it was as if the vibe that they were giving off is as if they were kind of like animalistic. They were kind of hunched over as if they were sort of like stalking us, trying to get us out of that space. And I mean, we stood there watching them for maybe three or four minutes, moving around in the woods, coming back out of the woods, 
basically coming up towards us. And at a certain point, I think we just felt like we weren't safe anymore. And, and we left kind of in a big screaming pile of people, like just running out of the location. And in doing research after the fact, the land at one point in time had been sacred to the First Nations people in Canada. And the stories associated with the land was that there were spirits on this land that were constantly trying to protect it and keep it safe. And so I don't know if that's what we saw. I've never seen anything like that since. I've, I've told this story quite a few times, and I've had a lot of people talk to me uh, about having experienced very similar things on sacred sites. And so I don't know if maybe they were spirits that were protecting the land from people coming in and, and investigating on it or for whatever reason. But that, for me, that experience stopped me from investigating for quite a few years. And it was just because it was, I had ethical questions to myself at that point in time, like, is this something that I should continue doing? But also, it was so overwhelming and so terrifying that, uh, you know, it really frightened me. And I think that it was enough that for quite a few years, I sort of uh, took the bench for a little while. <laughs> I think my story is fairly similar. I am just hearing that story, and I want to take the bench. <laughs> oh, my Lord. It was terrifying. And it's such a strange detail. I mean, they really did look like television static in this, in this very kind of distorted human shape. And they were stalking us and, and corralling us, basically, kind of like out of that property, off the land. And we obliged. <laughs> we went running. <laughs> Greg, what about for you? When I was a kid, there was an old abandoned church that we used to investigate that had a lot of legends around it. And, you know, we were young and impressionable. And again, reading a lot of stuff like Ed and Lorraine Warren, we decided we were going to give the church an exorcism. And we printed the exorcism off of the internet. And we filled water guns with holy water. <laughs> and we went into this place. And in our imminent 16-year-old wisdom, decided we knew better than whatever timeless, ageless, formless thing might exist in this place and screamed at it and yelled at it. And then I watched a man get choked to the ground by an unseen entity, watched a vapor, a green vaporous mist come down off of the pulpit, saw a book fly through the air. And then a lot of people had their lives ruined for quite a while afterwards. People got sick. People got into weird accidents. There were actual exorcisms that came out of this mess. And I was at one point visited by three strange entities that uh, started telling me things about the future. <laughs> and I've that's a thing that I've struggled with for a long, long time. Still don't really know quite how I feel about it. That one definitely freaked me out. Still freaks me out. It's a strange place that I think uh, I will always think about and always be not quite sure what to do with. I kind of compartmentalized that one. That was one that made me go, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this. I think I don't ever want to do this. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, I can, I, I, I got to process that. I'm like, <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the that. Cliff's Notes version. Like, uh, that's, there's so many layers to that. Yeah. And perhaps one day we can have a longer conversation on that. To me, thinking about like your background of coming from a long line of Baptist ministers. Mm hmm. And Baptist preachers mm -hmm. and like the ego that goes in with, 
I got this. Oh, of course. I have the power of God to, behind me. I can, yeah. I can do this. Power I can, of God. Yeah, I can tell power this. Power of Christ compels you. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, let me tell you, that ain't how it works. <laughs> yeah. What are we doing? We're hunting a ghost. A ghost? Exactly. Who does that? So going to some of our listeners online, at Jupiter Mining 99 wants to know what books or texts are essential or meaningful to your work as paranormal investigators. I think a book that everyone should read, it's a little bit on the academic side, is a book by George P. Hansen called The Trickster and the Paranormal. Mm-hmm. I highly, highly, highly recommend that to people who really want a good idea of what might be happening in paranormal cases. And I would also recommend a lot of books like there's a book called Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallee. And most people associate that as like a UFO book. But there's some really important stuff about how this phenomena, whatever it is, may may shift and change and appear, you know, sometimes as a miracle, sometimes as a ghost, sometimes as a as an elf, whatever. There's some really important ideas in there. So those are two right off the top of my head that I think everybody who is interested in paranormal phenomena as a whole should read. For me, uh, being someone who utilizes the spiritual so often in the paranormal, there's an author that, his name is Scott Cunningham, and he's focused a lot on witchcraft and ritual. But I think that he is someone who, if you're interested in the spiritual aspect of paranormal research, I think and utilizing ritual for it. I think he's a really wonderful jumping off point. Pretty much anything that he's written, he wrote a book called Earth Power, which is one that I usually suggest to people. And it helps to kind of start to feel the difference between what were once living energies and were not human living energies. And so it's it's a great book to read to sort of really start to understand the differences and or feel the differences between the two. So I probably would push people towards reading some Scott Cunningham. And then at Leonard Tiana asks, has anything followed you to home after an investigation? And I think I'll tag on to that. What are the things that you put in place to ensure nothing follows you home after an investigation? Both of us have experienced things kind of following us home. And sometimes they're harmless things. And sometimes they're just curious. And that's okay. And I'm fine with that. There's a lot, because of the nature of what we do and and just how many objects are in our home, we're constantly kind of in a state of change because someone will give us something. And, you know, one of the details that not a lot of people know about the museum is when someone gives us something new, that object itself can change the vibe of many of the other ones. Because if you're introducing something new into a space energetically— it's going to shift what you've got going on already. So uh, it's like letting your kid hang out with that one kid with the Kool Aid mouth. Yeah, or like you the know kid. he's a bad influence. Yeah, that's that exactly what it is. And so we're constantly in a state of fine tuning or retuning um, what we do to kind of keep the energy relaxed. And that's just a lot of ritual kind of energy cleansings. And it's as much a part of our lives as brushing our teeth is at this point in time. It's just. Things that we have set in place, I cleanse using specific types of herbs, and I do a lot of black salt cleansings, and we have things around our property, and we have things that basically are just set in place to keep everything as chill as possible. And 
when something happens, then it's just a matter of kind of rethinking, okay, well, how do we, what do we need to do in order to change this? And so, again, like I said, it's just sort of fine-tuning or retuning our process kind of over and over and over again. And never underestimate the power of a nice stern go away. Yeah, that's very true. Honestly, that works, <laughs> works you know, nine times out of 10 is just saying like, hey, you got to go now. Let's uh, let us have our space and you go back to yours. Thank you so much, Greg and Dana, for spending time with us today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast. It has been such a pleasure to get to talk to you both about hauntings and paranormal investigation and all of the amazing things in our weird world that we get to spend time with. Oh, pleasure's Thank ours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I hope you enjoyed decoding hauntings with us, and I look forward to you joining us next time as we decode our next mystery. The Mysteries Decoded podcast is brought to you by the CW Podcast Network and is hosted and produced by me, Darcy Staniforth. Our executive producer is Jen Titus. Our audio engineer is Joel Smith. Our editor and audio producer is Joshua Sterling Manley. 